1: Close to 600,000 people in the U.S. don't have a home of their own. That's according to 2022 data from the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Forty percent are living outdoors or in buildings not meant for human habitation, like Brooke Carroll in
2: Austin, Texas. I live at Republic Square. It's a park in downtown Austin that we live in, tents, and um, it's really miserable. Um,
1: Ideal situation to get off the streets. And more people without homes are living on the streets rather than in shelters, often in tent encampments. As more tent communities pop up in cities across the U.S., officials often respond by clearing them out. Brooke Carroll says he lived in a place that was swept away by police and other public workers.
2: They took my stuff away when I was there, and they confiscated everything I had. I had to go to Mesaic Church and get another uh, tent and sleeping bag. And so... Pretty much this is all I got. People
1: living on the street are 10 times more likely to be stopped by the police and nine times more likely to spend a night in jail than people living in shelters. That's according to a 2019 study by the California Policy Lab. And some cities and states have explicitly made public camping illegal. Voters in Austin, Texas approved a camping ban in 2021. Cleo Patricek is part of Save Austin Now, which led the successful city ballot measure.
3: We are basically loving them to death by allowing them to live in unregulated, filthy encampments that are not helping them seek shelter, seek treatment uh, from either drug abuse or mental illness. There, there is no argument to allow this to continue. This is not appropriate for anyone. It's not safe. And in the meantime, we need to have different ways in helping the homeless community.
1: One option cities are exploring is sanctioned encampments. These are places where unhoused people can pitch a tent and live without the threat of law enforcement telling them to leave. They can have different amenities from basic sanitation like porta-potties to on-site case management. Portland, Oregon, plans to open six city-run encampments that could house 1,500 people. The city plans to set these up before it bans public camping by 2024. As part of 1A's Remaking America project, 1A's June Loeffler visited Austin, Texas, the site of a sanctioned homeless encampment. After the break, we bring you that report and explore how different cities across the country are trying to address homelessness and what factors need to be considered i'm jen white you're listening to the 1a podcast where we get to the heart of the story we'll be back with more in just a moment stay with us
4: this episode sponsor is pwc which offers the following message a robot may not be coming for your job but competitors are coming for your market share pwc pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge reimagine operations from the cloud Fuel innovation with responsible AI and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's get into the conversation. In 2019, Texas set up one of its only sanctioned campsites. Four years later, 1A's
3: June Leffler visited the site to learn how residents are faring. Austin's only sanctioned homeless encampment sits on a seven-acre plot of asphalt. tucked away off the highway near the airport. The State Department of Transportation had been using it.
1: This basically was just a
3: giant tech stop parking lot where they serviced vehicles at and then I think it sat empty for quite a few years. That's Emily Ballard, a social worker at the site now called the Esperanza Community. In 2019, the state of Texas invited unhoused Austinites to live there. In the early days, people pitched tents and built makeshift shelters. It was a time
4: of survival, but it was also a time where you, like, got to see some really unique skills and survival methods and some really creative, like,
3: architecture. One resident, 47-year-old Tamika Bass, arrived at the camp two years ago. Before that... I've
2: actually lived in parking lots, I've lived in a creek bed, in a
3: tunnel, wherever I could find that was safe for me at the time. One night, a social worker approached her, telling her where she could find a different place to stay and I
2: had no idea that this was like a homeless camp.
3: Now, Bess has her own 100-square-foot unit, complete with electricity, air conditioning, heating, and a locking door.
2: I have my own tiny home, my own space. I don't have to worry about uh, some of the things that I, I did have to worry about when I was in a tent at nighttime.
3: The Other Ones Foundation runs the camp. The service provider stepped in to help about a year after the state founded the site. In 2021, the state handed over all camp operations to the other ones foundation through a 10 year lease. They've since built 80 tiny homes and plan to build at least 100 more. The units are painted different colors of red, blue, and green. Here's social worker Emily Ballard again. The painting is actually meant to be um, kind of residential looking, like it somehow works and it makes it look so much less beige. <laughs> Just last month, running showers and toilets were installed. The Other Ones Foundation and partner organizations also provide two meals a day, laundry services, jobs, case management, and security on site. It's been life-changing for resident Tamika Bass.
2: I have opened up so much to the point where I'm not scared to come outside. I can come out again and, and feel like, it's gonna be a good day, you know, it's gonna
3: I'll be safe. On the weekends, Bass works in the camp's kitchen making some extra money. In her free time, she challenges the security guards to a game of basketball. Our
2: kids. He's
3: one of the guys that I beat this weekend.
2: Hey <laughs> They knew I played sports. So a way for me to get some of the people back into exercising and moving around or whatever, a lot of them play sports as well. And pretty much they surprised me with Getting my goal and setting it up. They bought
3: me one. Like Bess, the Esperanza community has come a long way. It all began when the Texas Department of Transportation was preparing work on I 35. They had to remove structures and clean up along the highway, but people were living in those areas. Mike Adriano is a deputy engineer at the Texas Department of Transportation.
5: We design, build, construct, and operate roadways. Uh, we weren't richly really equipped. To kind of engage effectively on this kind of humanitarian level.
3: Folks were being displaced. So, Ariano formed a coalition of homeless service providers to help relocate people in 2017. Eventually, word got to Governor Greg Abbott's office that people needed somewhere to go. So, the state offered up the seven acre site in 2019. Ariano says state EMS and police provided water, porta potties, and 24 hour security. But
5: still wasn't the ideal situation.
3: So Ariano enlisted The Other One's foundation to make the place better. Executive Director Chris Baker remembers the beginning.
6: And then it was like 15 people moved out here and then it was 30 and then 50 and then 100 and then 200 until it was like a dystopian Burning Man, Mad Max, like different... Country right here in the middle of Austin.
3: In the beginning, the other one's foundation prioritized survival by delivering large amounts of ice.
6: I mean, the blacktop is 130, 140 degrees. There's no running water. There's no air conditioning. There's no, there's no place to get respite from this, like, brutal heat in the summertime.
3: Baker also describes those days as lawless.
6: We could get with everybody and say, okay, here's the list of rules you have to follow to be here. But, like, we had no way to enforce anything because we were essentially just, like, another resident. We just had a fancier building.
3: Things changed when the state leased the site to the other one's foundation. That's when temporary better shelters went in. These are ready-made homes used abroad to house refugees. They came before the tiny homes. That's also when residents could be kicked out for harassing others or not controlling their pets.
6: 99.9% of the issues that we had that were interpersonal were because of dogs. We were calling 911 for a dog bite almost daily. But we, like, we signed that lease, and it was like, boom, the next day. We said, if your dog is not on a leash and spayed or, or neutered and vaccinated, the dog cannot stay here.
3: Baker doesn't want a lot of rules. He's running a low-barrier shelter where folks can come as they are with their dogs or a substance use disorder without being turned away. Don't mind the hassle,
6: because this is
3: going to pass.
6: And I think every city in the World should have something like this.
3: That's 65-year-old Donald Hippy Montgomery. He's lived at the camp for three years.
6: It would be a welcome addition to the whole housing question because if we perfect this concept, you don't have to worry about the landlord. You might get tossed out, but you've always got a de- half-decent place to go.
3: But the Esperanza community doesn't have unlimited space. Folks can't pitch tents anymore, so only 80 people can live there until more tiny homes are built. And Baker says the community isn't right for everyone.
6: We don't want children here at all. And if somebody shows up here, if like a mother with children shows up here, like she's in a place a way place way safer than this. Like that day, one hundred percent of the time.
3: The foundation does move people into stable housing. It says it helped one hundred seventy clients find housing in twenty twenty two. There's no time limit on how long residents can stay at the camp, but Baker says it's not meant to be permanent.
6: What we have built here is a. Homeless shelter, it's a very different-looking sort of shelter. That's what it is. And we don't want people staying in shelter forever.
3: Matt Malika agrees. He's executive director of the Ending Community Homelessness Coalition, Austin's federally designated agency on homelessness.
6: In order for something like Esperanza to work really well, you have to be able to move folks through it. It has to be a place where people go to get connected to services and get connected to their housing voucher, and then move on to their permanent housing resource.
3: Malika says those options are limited. He says there are 50 units of on-site permanent supportive housing in Austin, but there are thousands of homeless Austinites.
6: If you don't have permanent housing for folks to move into, then people stay there for really long periods of time in a place that's not meant to be used as a permanent housing option.
3: On a downtown street just blocks away from a soup kitchen and a homeless shelter, Francisco Martinez runs a mobile shower unit for the Other Ones Foundation. It's his part-time job.
5: I want to open up a bank account, ma'am. Like, these are things that are, like, everybody has. Like, I want to get a car.
3: Martinez is also homeless, but he wants a full-time white-collar job. He says he can't do manual labor like he used to.
5: And with a job, then I could get a house for myself. But not just any job, ma'am. I'm beat up already. I'm 55 but I'm bilingual fluently.
3: Martinez isn't interested in living at the Esperanza community. It's far away from his job, and he doesn't want to live in a tight community with other people. For now, he'll hold out for an apartment or house where he can live independently. For 1A, I'm June Loeffler in Austin, Texas. This show is part of 1A's Remaking
1: America project, looking at how our government is and is not working for everyone. It's a partnership with six public radio stations, including KUT in Austin, Texas. When we come back, we hear how other cities are dealing with homeless encampments.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
1: What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear... It means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing how cities are or aren't helping their unhoused residents. While many places clear out parks and underpasses where people sleep in tents, some are also working on providing services. Joe in Columbia, Missouri, doesn't think his town is doing enough.
6: I work in behavioral health care at a crisis center, and we see at least one, if not more, unhoused people coming to our doors every day. Until recently, many of the unhoused were camped out in local forests and under overpasses. However, the city recently went and purged all those encampments and forced people from their only shelter. The problem is the city offered them no other place to go. We have only one year-round shelter with limited beds, and we have an opportunity campus that's under development, but that is still several years away. It is so frustrating to have to tell our clients at the crisis center that there is nowhere for them to go.
1: Joe, thanks for that message. Let's add some more voices to the discussion. Joining us from Washington, D.C., is Donald Whitehead. He's the executive director for the National Coalition for the Homeless. Also in D.C. is Rachel Cohen. She's a senior policy reporter at Vox. And joining us from Houston, Texas, is Mark Eichenbaum. He's the special assistant to the mayor of Houston for homeless initiatives. Thank you all for joining us. Donald, the Esperanza community started as a state sanctioned camp for people in Austin to pitch a tent. It's now a community of people with tiny homes. What do you make of this model?
5: Uh, I have some mixed feelings about tiny homes. I certainly also have some mixed feelings about uh, sanctioned encampments. Uh, So I think the solution, we believe that housing is a human right and the solution is permanent housing. Um, I do. Uh, think that the idea of a tiny home provides something that is really, really critical. Uh, and from my uh, tours around the country, going to Skid Row and other uh, large encampments, the, the biggest uh, need, uh, along with the many behavioral health needs and, and other needs that are, are, ne- are in communities, is a lock on a door some safety, some protection from both the elements and uh, people that prey upon vulnerable populations. So in in that regard, I think tiny homes are a temporary solution. Um, I do believe that they are kind of, and and certainly more so sanctioned encampments, uh, a stopgap measure that does not end homelessness. And so uh, I, I think that you know people do it uh, in in instead of doing more long term solutions like uh, permanent housing um, shelters are not homes shelters are uh, temporary spaces and 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 I think that's the best use of uh, tiny homes they're not as durable of course as 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 uh, regular homes so I applaud people for efforts, but I think the resources could be much better used for permanent housing.
1: Well, Mark, the city of Houston does not have sanctioned camps for its homeless population. Why is that?
7: Yeah, I think we can all agree that having people living in campsites on the side of our streets and on our sidewalks is not good. It's not good for our community, and it's especially not good for the individuals who are residing in those encampments. So we can all, and we can and most importantly, we can do better as society. We shouldn't. We shouldn't tolerate it and say that's that's okay as a society. We we are more compassionate than and we should do better uh, to our fellow citizens. However, the difference gets in how do we respond? And in Houston, you know, Mayor Turner believes that the holistic response is is the best response. Uh, And we do that through housing, not because it's just the most compassionate thing to do, but because it's actually the most effective thing to do. By offering housing to folks, we can not only get them out of the encampment, we actually get long-term benefits of getting them out of homelessness. And at the end of the day, we're lasered focused on impact and reducing unsheltered homelessness. And so for us, it's not good enough to just move homeless individuals from one place to another place where they're still homeless. We want to get people actually out of the bonds of homelessness.
1: Rachel, what cities have created or are considering creating these sanctioned camps?
8: Um, yes. And, and just to um, echo what Mark was saying, I think a lot of the cities that are turning to sanctioned encampments are places that are doing a less good job than Houston in building new housing, making housing affordable, and so it's it's kind of this option that people are doing because they aren't provide they don't have housing to to get people into. Um, so you know, an example of a place that is turning to sanctioned encampments. We were talking about Portland earlier on the show, um, so they're gonna be you know creating these sanctioned camps in Portland and in exchange for that, they are going to be banning um, you know there were more than 700 other encampments spread across the city this past year. And so those encampments will, when this law you know takes effect, be illegal and and people will not be allowed to do that. So that's kind of how this is shaking out. And a lot of these um, the, the concept of encampment uh, sanctioned encampments, um, is a model that, um, you know, it was sort of initially backed in more conservative leaning areas, but as we're seeing in places like Portland, there are more um, liberal cities that are looking at it too as they are feeling the heat to, to do something.
1: So, if I'm hearing you correctly and you're reporting what you found is it's cities that lean toward sanctioned encampments, they're, they're facing a lack of permanent housing options for people.
8: Uh, they do, um, and I think, but but I agree with Mark that it's not that this is the only option that they can do, but it is something that uh, they're getting pressure to do because they feel they want to you know, make it so that you don't see tent encampments all over your city. And maybe they could just put it in a couple places or out of sight, out of mind. And that's kind of the the thinking.
1: Well, many cities will enlist police and sanitation workers to get rid of unsanctioned camps. Rachel, what exactly happens during encampment sweeps?
8: Right now, there are kind of four different categories of responses to tent encampments. And, um, you know, that's what housing research is sort of, think analyze it in that frame. Um so on the one hand, there are there's the so-called tough love tough love approach. And that's where you have these fairly aggressive, abrupt sweeps of tents and and it often involves law enforcement and, you know, people's personal belongings are thrown out and discarded and, and people have to evacuate. And you know, research shows that often, you know, they usually just end up find you know, pitching tents somewhere nearby and uh you know the consequence is that people actually, you know, lose even more distrust in city governments, and and it fuels even more, you know, bad will between vulnerable populations and cities. So that's um, that's one approach. On the other end of the uh, you know spectrum, there are these models where cities say, we're going to kind of support these tent encampments. We're going to, you know, maybe bring porta-potties. And it's sort of a more humane-ish version of the sanctioned encampment approach. Um, they are sort of saying, we're, we're going to let this, we're going to look the other way and we're going to sort of help you in some ways. Um, the most common form of response right now for cities is something uh, housing researchers call closure and support. And that is what we're seeing in most places where, city officials will usually give people living in an encampment advance notice that they're going to be clearing the camp on, you know, X date, whether it's two weeks in advance or a month or two months in advance to try to give people time. And in that time period, what they'll do is they'll send in, you know, housing caseworkers and social workers to try to work with the people living in the encampments to find permanent housing or move to shelters. And on the day of the clearing, um, you know, if people leave their personal belongings behind, some cities say, okay, we're going to we're gonna keep it for another 60 days. You can call and pick up your stuff if you don't have it. Um, in many cases, these sweeps, you know, and clearings, even when they are the, of the more compassionate kind, people can lose really important things that belong to them. People lose medication. People lose walkers and, and glasses and things like that. So um, cities are trying to get better. They have, activists have, have applied a lot of pressure to sort of, raise the standards of these, but um, even in cases that have employed sort of what are becoming the best, most compassionate seeming standards, uh, they, are, they can be very traumatic for mm. people. And, and that's why there's a lot of criticism about using law enforcement and arresting people on top of that. Mark, how does the
1: city of Houston conduct its encampment sweeps? And, and what support, if any, do you provide to people
7: who are displaced? Well, I think the first thing is that the city doesn't do sweeps. And that's a very important um, um, issue because what you're doing when you sweep, and this is exactly what Rachel was saying, is that you're literally sweeping people from one corner to another corner or you're sweeping people further into neighborhoods um, and you're really a cat chasing the tail. Uh, so for us, uh, sweeps, once again, uses a lot of resources and doesn't solve the issue. So what we do is is we are going and actually offering permanent housing to everybody at an encampment. That's how we decommissioned the encampment. The city of Houston, working with Harris County, uh, we integrated our homeless housing response system into our activities. Um, and why, why we do this? Because it's effective. We found if we just go and offer shelter to folks, only 2% of the folks in our encampments will say yes, for various reasons. Some of it legitimate and some of it not. But when we go and we offer them the path to permanent housing, we're getting 90% of the folks in encampments saying yes. When focusing on decommissioning encampments, the key is preventing displacement, so, you know, whether whether you're sweeping or you're writing tickets or you're arresting, all that's doing is displacing folks and folks remain on the streets. But if you're able to offer the housing, then you're voluntarily getting folks permanently off the streets and out of homelessness, and often you can do it for the same cost as it would to create a sanctioned campsite or to do these sweeps that don't solve anything so it's really looking beyond those stopgap measures and really focus on the long-term solution. So notices go out to everybody, housing navigators and social workers and case managers spend time working with all the um, with the residents and then we are either moving them directly from the encampment into housing with support services, or removing them into what we call a navigation center, which is a pit stop on the road to being housed uh, while they wait to be placed in that permanent housing unit with those wraparound support services. We're able to reduce homelessness and we're able to ultimately help these individuals uh, out and give them the dignity they deserve, which is to be out of a tent, whether it's in a sanctioning campsite or a non-sanctioning campsite. We'll be back with more from you and our
1: guests in just
7: a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore.
1: Let's get back to the discussion with this message from John in South Dakota.
2: I've been homeless three times myself. I'm 61 now. I think we need to continue to talk different words instead of the same old words around the same old subjects and expecting different results. I, I think the individual needs to be taken a look at more than the bigger subject because those individuals make up the bigger ch- subject. And I, it's hard to compare suffering in people.
1: Donald, demographically speaking, who's more likely to live on the streets?
5: So it's it, it depends on many different underlying factors. Um if you look at our urban communities, uh definitely uh people are more likely to to be uh in in condition. So so I, I guess two things. The demographics are the same as the demographics of the general population of the United States of America. Um, There are places where more people are chronically homeless, meaning they've been homeless for more than a year. Uh, They have substance abuse issues. By definition, those people are people with mental health or substance abuse issues. They make up about... Uh, 10 to 20% of the population at this point. Um, So everybody else is um, people who have become rent burdened. Uh, They've been evicted. Uh, There are people who have jobs that are not able to be accessed because of the, the rules in a shelter system. There are people with pets. Um. So they really mirror the general population. They're unaccompanied youth. They're youth that are aging out of foster care. There are veterans uh, that have come back from uh, their service. So they mirror the general population. And uh, again, if it's a, the chronically homeless population by definition, that's going to be somebody with a mental health issue. But I think what happens is they are characterized, everyone, 100% of the population, people see it as a moral issue, that it's some feeling uh, uh, in, in their life that has caused their homelessness. But often, uh, it's structural issues. It's unaffordable housing. It's the lack of living wage jobs. Uh, and I could go on and on. Well, I, um, I, want
1: to, I want to bring Mark in here, because Mark, Houston has been able to reduce the number of people experiencing homelessness by more than 60% since 2011. How has the city done it?
7: Yeah, and the city's done it two ways. And the first one is is uh, we have a, a unified, collaborative homeless housing system. And so what does that mean? That means the city, the county... Uh, 100 agencies um, serving the homeless, uh, the ecumenical community, the private sector, and even philanthropy are all united working together on one unified plan with a single set of goals and strategies. We're combining and leveraging all of our day-to-day efforts and resources to maximize that impact. Um, And then... And the second part of that is that we really look at ROI. We look at the return for investment. We don't have a lot of dollars to unfortunately invest in social issues here in in Texas and especially in Houston. And so the little resources we have, we have a duty to invest it wherever we can get the biggest bang for the buck. And when we look at the data to say where can we get the biggest return for our homeless dollars, uh, there's no comparison. It is housing, Hmm. housing by far. Uh, And so we have gone all in on housing. Um, There's a lot of things you can do to respond to homelessness or to serve the homeless. But the question is, is that ultimately reducing homelessness? And there's a difference. Here in Houston, we are laser focused on only working on the strategies that can reduce homelessness and that can also be brought to scale so that we can move the needle. Um, 28,000 individuals permanently housed since 2011, which has also helped us reduce our street homeless population by 75%.
1: We've heard a lot on this show about the lack of affordable housing. Is part of why your model in Houston is working is just because you have more housing available for people?
7: Uh, I'll be the first one to say that um, the amount of affordable housing... Uh, and having affordable housing is key. Uh, Lack of affordable housing creates homelessness and without affordable housing, you can't solve it. But I will, nobody will tell you that Houston has enough affordable housing. Um, And our multifamily um, occupancy rates have grown exponentially here in Houston, just like across the country. It can be really difficult to find units for our clients. The key here is that it's not just about affordable housing, it's about accessible housing. I can have all the affordable housing in the world, but if I can't get our individuals experiencing homelessness who have challenging backgrounds, broken leases, evictions, uh, credit issues, criminal backgrounds, if I can't get those individuals into those units, it doesn't matter if they're affordable or not. So the, really the big focus is you, know, you have to be accessible. I will tell you this, the communities that are struggling, that have really low amounts of affordable housing, I feel for them, but they also have exponentially more resources and dollars uh, at their disposal. And so if you can create a sanctioned campsite, you can also create housing. And you just have to do both simultaneously and really focus on that long-term effort in in a united way. How financially sustainable is this model for Houston? Houston. Um, It's very difficult. Uh, That is our number one issue right now, is sustainable funding. 99% of the funds that we use come from the federal government. Unfortunately, we don't have no local... um, city government dollars going into this from our general fund. As much as the mayor would like it and he's looked underneath the couch cushions and underneath the rugs, we just don't have it, especially with a voter-imposed revenue cap. So what that means is is we have to get really, really smart and stretch every single dollar that we have. I would not recommend that anywhere. But we look at this, we received all this federal money related to the pandemic, and that helped us reduce unsheltered homelessness in just 17% in just the past year. But those dollars are coming to an end. And leaders, my mayor and leaders of our homeless system are wondering, what do we do next? This sounds very perverse, but the way that we fund homelessness in Houston is through crises. We've had seven federally declared natural disasters in the past seven years. And those dollars that come in is what the mayor targets into homelessness to get an impact. But we do need sustainable sources, and that is key. We got this question from Wendy in Pittsburgh
1: who asks, for Houston, how many of the 90% who choose permanent housing remain there after, say, one year? How many of them end up back on the streets? Having worked in housing services, I see the cycle continue due to the lack of long-term support. Mark, what can you tell us?
7: Uh, I, I can do better than one year. Our, our two-year rate is 90%. So uh, of the of the folks that we are placing into permanent housing, 90% are staying long-term. And the reason because of this is because it's a fallacy that we're just taking somebody and throwing them to a housing unit and then shutting the door and walking away. The reality is, we will never house somebody without support services. The support services is what helps keep the person housed. And actually, the housing is what makes the support services effective. And you have to have both. And so when you couple those two together, not only are people willing to go to the housing, but they actually stay housed for the long term.
1: Rachel, you've reported on Houston's homeless response. How feasible would it be for other cities to replicate their their methods and results?
8: Well, I think a lot of cities could do the kind of very strategic um, collaborative work that Houston's done partnering with the county in support of, uh, nonprofits in the area. I think Houston is a real is considered a real national leader in modeling what that could look like to have a very integrated response. Now obviously, for the, uh, the housing supply piece, we're going have to cities are going to have to work on adjusting their zoning laws, maybe their state housing laws, and and a lot of places are looking at that. And so I absolutely think that can be done, and I think that should be done. Um, I think that Mark's point is right, that even given the fact that Houston has a lot fewer financial resources at its disposal, um, so some of the places that that have some of the most acute crises around tent encampments and rising homelessness also have a lot of resources, and figuring out how to leverage those um, is a really important a piece of the puzzle. And I think, you know, there is, we we know how to, we know what it takes. This is not a problem that people don't understand how to help people in. And so a lot of it is political will. And so if the question is, can there be political will? I think the answer is yes, but it it takes work and it takes strategic work.
1: Housing advocates say we need to take a housing first approach. That means making sure people have a stable home to live in. But as Mark also mentioned, addressing other issues like substance use disorder or employment. Donald, why should cities prioritize getting people first into permanent housing?
5: So a number of things, and I I really love what uh, Mr. Eichenbaum said uh, on a couple of issues. One is that COVID offered a response that really uh, gave us some things that we've been asking for for a long time. And that's the so money that came through the American Rescue Plan, correct? E- exactly. And and so those those dollars uh, uh, came in the form of prevention dollars. So there was a, a moratorium on evictions. There was m- money to help with emergency housing vouchers. There was also uh resources to provide hotels as short, short-term placement for people. And what we found through all those dollars is it really is about the money at the end of the day. Uh, cities don't have as much um, expendable resources in their, in their general funds to support housing, so they typically use federal pass-through dollars. However, those federal pass-through dollars have never been at the level of the extent of the need. So uh, we, we, we have always provided myopic solutions that are really emergency solutions. If we were willing to raise the level, and these are our federal elected officials, if they were able to raise the level to the need and provided cities with the resources. But cities also have to be a lot more innovative. Um, we have tons of abandoned buildings in this country. And we know that adaptive reuse, taking those buildings and redeveloping them as housing is actually less expensive than building new housing. So we need to uh, have multiple kinds of housing units available, some permanent supportive housing. Um, we have in the McKinney-Vento Act, there's uh, federal property that has been taken offline, can be used as homeless shelters We've created 500 units since 1987. That's not acceptable in this country. So we need to be innovative. We need to be creative. And we also need to mobilize people in communities, because there's a mutual benefit from every community if we house people living on the street.
1: We just have a couple of minutes here. And and Mark, I, I wanted to circle back to something you mentioned earlier, and that's your navigation center in Houston. Just this year, you opened the first of its kind
7: in Texas. What exactly is it and how does it work? Yeah, a housing navigation center is the pit stop on to being uh, pit stop on the road to being housed. Uh, the housing process uh, is lengthy. Uh, per federal regulations, there's lots of paperwork and lots of verifications that have to be per, uh, performed. Additionally, sometimes it takes time to find that affordable unit that is willing to lease to the client. So, what a navigation center allows us to do is we can. Uh, move an entire encampment as a community into the navigation center. And then they—that that is a consistent, safe, and stable location for them to work with their housing navigators and their case managers. And then they're placed out of that navigation center one by one as the units become available. It's all about helping us increase the number of people we can get into housing, and expedite the process. And thus far, 98% of the exits out of our navigation center have been into permanent housing with services. And you know, our goal is, is nobody's there for more than 60 days. Um, and right now we're about at 30 days right now. And so it's all about, at the end of the day, doing what's effective. Encampments are not good, but we have to respond in a way that's actually going to be effective that helps out everybody. Our guests
1: were National Coalition for the Homeless Executive Director, Donald Whitehead, Rachel Cohen, Senior Policy Reporter for Vox, and Mark Eichenbaum. He leads Houston's Homeless Response. Thanks to you all. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country, including KUT in Austin, Texas. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler. Amanda Williams leads our Remaking America project. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives, like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR.
0: What does it mean to be black in America? An NPR's Black Stories Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences. You'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories Black Truths wherever you get your podcast.